Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. November is Native American Heritage Month, a time to recognize and learn about the history, culture, and contributions of indigenous people in what is now the United States. This hour, we'll meet three indigenous Iowans to talk about their lives, their identities, how they connect with their ancestral cultures, the causes that are important to them, and what it's like to be indigenous in Iowa today. But we're going to start in the movie theater. Popular culture has always been a powerful force when it comes to non-Indigenous Americans understanding or more often misunderstanding of Indigenous people. This year, one movie in particular looms large. It's Killers of the Flower Moon, directed by Martin Scorsese. The movie is about what is known as the Reign of Terror, a plot by white men to kill Osage people to steal the wealth they had gained from their oil-rich lands. This happened in the 1920s, and at least 60 Osage people were murdered or went missing during that time. Whose land is this? My land. You made a good choice coming back here. Osage are the finest, wealthiest, and most beautiful people on God's earth. They outsmarted everybody. They have the say. Who gets the oil? Well, we mix these families together, and that estate money flows the right direction. It'll come to us. The Osage, their time is over. We got to take back control of our home. I was sent down from Washington, D.C. to see about these murders. We have so many deaths, we've lost count. It's just bad luck. Seems more like an epidemic than bad luck to me. Osage is dying by the enemy. Do not let them die alone. Audio from the trailer for the film Killers of the Flower Moon, based on a nonfiction book by the same name written by David Gran and published in 2017. With me now is Jim Gray. He is a former chief of the Osage Nation. He is also a descendant of Henry Roan one of the men killed during the Reign of Terror. Jim, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Charity, for having me on. Glad to be here. I, I want to focus on this this part of your history, which I, is so very painful. So I, I really appreciate your willingness to talk with us today. Um, is this something that you grew up knowing about? Uh, to some degree, yes. Um, of course, as a young child, I wasn't you know, made aware of all the details, of course. Um, but I do carry my uh, great grandfather's middle name. And, um, you know, I think my mom didn't want us to forget his story or forget his name. And I'm happy to report that there's literally dozens of members of my family who have gone on and have the name Roan in their first or middle name over the years, long before the book or the movie came out. But it's just something that's been a part of our life. And it's, as an adult, um, I did my own research because I didn't learn any of this story in school in Oklahoma. And, um, and so having done my own research and read books that have been written about that over the years made me uh, much more aware of the story. What 
was your reaction when David Gran came around um, in doing his research for his book? Well, I have a I have a relative. His name is Charles Redcorn, and he's a first cousin of mine. And uh, uh, he's much older than me. And uh, he wrote a book uh, called A Pipe for February, which is a um, a novel about the Osage Reign of Terror from an Osage's point of view. Um, much of the stories that have been written in literature about this particular event in the past have been written based on the files of the FBI investigations into the murder, such as the one of my great-grandfather. But literally for every one murder that was investigated, as you mentioned in the introduction, there are scores of other Osages who passed away during that period of time, and none of their murders or, or, or deaths were ever investigated. And uh, so he wrote the story based on interviews that he did with people who lived during that period of time throughout his life, and he put it together in a novel. So I was helping him with a, a project to make that into a movie when I heard that this book came out in the way that kind of uh, kind of blindsided a lot of us that were working on the project. Um, but it was something that was heralded by the, the, the literary community as a major piece of work by a well-known author. And of course, he was all over the news uh, when the book came out, but even more so before even the book came out, there was a bidding war for the movie rights. And so we knew that there was a movie going to be made from this book before it had even come out. Wow. So when you learned about this movie, when it was, you know, in the early stages of being made and learned that Martin Scorsese was going to direct the film. And and here, you know, this is an incredibly important story. And it's a story that a lot of Americans just didn't know about. A lot of Americans still don't know about it. But. Here was this story being told by white men. So can you tell me how you felt and, and how maybe some of your Osage friends and neighbors felt watching this, this project take off? Well, I see there's two ways to look at this. Um, in a perfect world, the Osages would be in control of their own story and control of their own narrative and the, and, and, the industry would fund a project such as that for the rest of the world to know. Um, we don't live in that world yet. Um, I've become abundantly aware of that and, and my own experience. And, and so that part of it being, you know, like white people telling the story of the indigenous people, that's nothing new. In fact, that's all it's ever been. And so, um, this doesn't really stand out in that concept, in that context. What did stand out was the way they went about collaborating with the tribe. And I think that they deserve a lot of credit for taking that extra step and engaging the Osage community, involving the Osage tribe, involving the descendants of those the victims that are depicted in the film. Although you get you get some credit for the fact that they did involve you. You had to stand up and say, hey, you know, this is our story, right? Well, I, I was among others, yes. And uh, there were um, a number of people from the Greyhorse community who these this 
set of murders took place is in the Osage Nation. It's a, in a, uh, a community called Greyhorse, and the town nearby there is called Fairfax, and that was, that's where a lot of this events in that movie take place. And so the descendants of the people who live in that Greyhorse community came together, and they asked a local lawyer, Wilson Pipestem, to write a letter on their behalf inviting Martin Scorsese in 2019 to come to our community and um, put some food out and a traditional meal and let's break bread and let's talk about what your intentions are and allow us to, you know, have an opportunity to say something about it because we have concerns, deep concerns. And, uh, and to Scorsese's credit, he responded very quickly and a date was set and um, we had that event and each one of us had a chance to say something to him and his team. We had a really good, well-rounded conversation about the characters, the culture of the tribe, the the cosmology, the you know how we saw things, how we saw the world back in those days, how we dressed, and how we the role of women played in our community, and and the the complicated issue of the headright system and what how it forced people into making decisions that to us today would seem crazy. But these were the choices they made because of federal policies limited Osage people's choices and how they how they married and who they could trust and, and how they could spend their money. And so a lot of these exchanges took place over time, but that's when it started. And I was part of the people, part of that group that really tried to get his attention and say, we don't want you to fail. We want you to get it right. And we want to help you. What do you think of the film? Um, well, I think that the, I think the country should see it. And I think it should start some conversations. And it seems like that's already happened. And, uh, and I think that it is coming at a time in, at least in Oklahoma, and, and I know in at least a couple of dozen other states around the country where state legislatures are passing laws to prevent this kind of history for being taught in public mm -hmm. schools. And I think this stands as a bulwark against those kind of efforts that people need to know what happened in the past. They need to know how things played out the way they did in Indian country. And Osages, while they're the focus of this story, the federal policies that allotted, broke up tribal lands and allotted it out to individuals, the appointment of guardians to oversee their financial affairs, those were federal policies that stretched all over the United States, wherever that was taking place. And uh, and so the Osages were probably the most prominent one because of the amount of money that, that was being generated off the oil. Uh, but still, the practice was still the same in small tribes and large tribes all around the country. You have said that it's important to understand. I mean, it, the FBI comes off as sort of the heroes of this story in many ways, but it wasn't the FBI that allowed the Osage people to get through this terrible time and to persevere. What what did make that possible, do you believe? Well, I think that the uh, what, what really is the driving force, and I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm pitching a pipe for February again, but I am a little bit. Because in the stories that are that make that book up, that make up that book, um, they were drawn from individuals 
whose lives were forever changed and altered by that period of time. And the crimes committed against them were never investigated. And, and what it also shows you is that it wasn't the FBI that helped these people, these Osages. It was the perseverance and hanging on to their cultural ways to help their, and their families and their clans and their culture is what got them through that period of time. Jim, thank you so much for talking with me. And I definitely need to do a little more reading and, and pick up my copy of A Pipe for February. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jim Gray is a former chief of the Osage Nation. Coming up on the show, we'll meet three indigenous Iowans. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. November is Native American Heritage Month, a time to recognize and learn about the history, culture, and contributions of indigenous people in what is now the United States. Now, just as learning black history shouldn't be limited to February and women's history shouldn't be limited to March, indigenous history is an important part of American history no matter what the date is. But we are taking advantage of this moment to talk with three indigenous Iowans about their experiences and the causes they feel most strongly about. In a few minutes, Jessica Ingleking and Sakawas Nobis of the Great Plains Action Society will be here. But my first guest, is Abigail Buffalo. She's a student at the University of Iowa focusing on health studies. She'll be graduating in the spring. She's also president of the Native American Student Association at the University of Iowa and a member of the Meskwaki Nation. Hello, Abigail. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you here. And I know that you consider Native American Heritage Month to be a good opportunity to educate your fellow students about indigenous people. You've actually encountered students, people your age who are surprised to learn that Native people still exist? Yes, actually. I attended like, it was like a student org fair at the University of Iowa. And I was sitting there and some person just came up and asked me like if Natives were real. And that's happened before. And I, of course, do not want to blame them. Like our education system here in the United States is not the greatest when it comes to educating people about the history of natives and our cultures and traditions and everything. So when people come up to me and ask questions like that, I try not to get offensive or like mean or mad at them or anything because I understand it's not necessarily their fault. Um, but this Although person it must hurt. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm surprised that people don't know that natives still exist today. Um, I mean, I'm modernized just like everyone else. I go to school. I live in a home. I have a car. I have an iPhone. You know, I go to the grocery store to get food. So um, just the fact that people don't know that we're here, it's like mind boggling. But I, I don't know. You know, I can't I try not to blame them, like I always say. So you are a senior at the University of Iowa. Yes. Coming to the University of Iowa, it's a couple of hours from home. 
were you able to, as soon as you got here, were you able to find a community of other Indigenous students? Um, not right away. Um, when I first came to the university, honestly, I just came here to get a degree, to graduate, and that was really what was on my mind. Um, but it was like my sophomore year, I think. I was in a Panera downtown, which no longer z- exists, but a man named Tracy Peterson actually approached me while I was there and was like, are you Abigail and Zoe Buffalo? I was with my sister, and we were like, yeah. And he was like, you need to join the Native American Student Association. And we were like, okay, like, we'll look into it. And he's like, I'm serious. And so we're like, okay, like, let's take a look. So I did, and I, like, went to one meeting that semester, and it was a lot of fun. Like, the people there, they, some of them were native some of them were allies and it was just a really nice community and space where I felt like safe and since then I've gone ever since I became the secretary the year after and I'm currently the president I was president last year as well so just making that community and space I love going to NASA meetings just talking about me I can also talk about problems of being native and the people there understand and they're able to support me and help me with anything that's really going on and I love also helping them with anything that they need so that wasn't necessarily a community you were looking for but it found you yes yes what has it meant to you to to have other indigenous students to connect with oh gosh it has made being at the university, like being like home. Um, It's hard being native here at the university and also just in general in life. And to have those people that know how you're feeling and know like what you're going through, it's so amazing to just have those conversations and always have people you can rely on. What do you think makes it particularly challenging for native students to come to a place like the University of Iowa? I think the biggest thing is that there aren't a lot of us here. You know, the university, of course, is a predominantly white institution. You know, there's thousands of students here. And I come from a community that's not huge. There's probably thousands of us, but definitely not thousands of students here. So just coming here and not knowing people where you can find people that you can relate to with the same identities as you. It's kind of scary and kind of hard. I'm really lucky as I came here with my sister. Um, So I kind of had that connection where I could rely on her and she could rely on me a lot. Um, But I would say that's the biggest thing. Now, you grew up on the Meskwaki settlement, but you went to school in Tama. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, you grew up in two different cultures. Yeah, it was a little hard. Um, Now thinking about it, um, I do sometimes wish I was able to learn more about my culture growing up. But also, I understand like why my parents made a decision that they did. Of course, I don't and not set with them at all for anything like that. But yeah, it was a little weird. It was a little hard in school as well, you know. I wasn't native enough for the natives, but I wasn't white enough for the white kids. But there was a lot of students in my grade that were native, and so we kind of stuck together, and it was really nice. And of course, you know, we had allies and people that supported us and other friends, so it wasn't terrible. So we talked about representation among the student body, Do you see Native representation on faculty at the University of Iowa? Yes. There's actually a council called the Native American Council, and I sit upon their meetings every other week. And they are a group of, like, staff and faculty, some Native, some not, but they all just work to support the Native students here on campus with recruitment and then also recruitment for staff. You are focusing on health studies. What do you hope to do with your degree? Oh, 
I would like to go into nursing. Um, the ultimate goal would actually be to become a traveling nurse, and I'd like to travel to different tribes uh, across the nation to kind of help in any way I can. Is there something in particular about the the health disparities that Indigenous people all over the United States and really all over the world, Indigenous people face health disparities that that inspired you to focus on this for your education? Yeah, one big thing about me is I just love educating people and learning more about like health disparities. I'm all about science. And I'm actually writing a research paper in one of my classes right now about health disparity. And my topic is um, Native Americans' life expectancy is a lot lower than other Americans, actually all Americans uh, here in the United States. And I've just learned so much about that. Actually, one statistic that is in mind is after the COVID uh, pandemic, our life expectancy went down, I believe it's 65.7 years, which is like, it was like 5.2 years less than it was before. Wow. And already before, we were five years less than average white individuals. So it's hard. Well, this is an opportunity to educate people a little bit. What are some of the factors that contribute to, to that shorter life expectancy? Oh, my goodness, there are so many things, which is kind of unfortunate. But, you know, there's a lot of things that can result in hoping you be healthy, like whether you have education, if you're in poverty, housing stability, um, having a job and employment, all these things in life contribute to your health. And unfortunately, when you look at statistics within Native Americans, we are very low on scales of having stability in life. And to help with that, I feel like there needs to be some sort of policies or programs just ensuring that us as Native individuals are having equitable care and resources when it comes to our communities. And we know that there's been a a lot of a lack of equity for a very, very long time in this country. Um, Before we move on, I want to ask you a little bit more about your work with the Native American Student Association. We talked about the community that you've been able to build with other indigenous students, but educating other students on campus is a big part of your work. I know you're preparing for your powwow that's coming up in April. Tell me about that. Oh my goodness, that has been a journey. I'm so stressed about that, but I'm trying not to be. Uh, It's just a huge event that we're planning. Uh, So right now, actually, the date is April 20th. but really, and what what for uh, for people who might want to come? What will it be like? Um, so really, a powwow itself is just a celebration of Indigenous community. We dance, sing. There will be vendors of Indian tacos and fry bread. Um, we're also hoping to have like little education tables, like you're mentioning, um, about like what a powwow is, the powwow etiquette, um, about Native American Student Association, also about NAC and what they do. We think this is a huge time for the community to come and learn about Indigenous cultures and traditions, and we want to be sure that people are able to feel comfortable in these scenarios and learn as well as enjoy their time. I can imagine among the Indigenous students, staff and faculty at the University of Iowa, uh, there's a wide variety of different tribal representation and different heritage. So is this a powwow that brings a lot of different traditions together? Yes, this powwow, since there is no tribe here in Iowa City, we're kind of open to any and everyone. We've had people from Canada come before, Alaska come before. We just love seeing all the different tribal representation that's come here. 
Well, Abigail, thank you so much for being here and stay with us. I want to bring my next guest into the conversation as well. Jessica Engelking is the representation director of the Great Plains Action Society. We'll talk more about the work of the Great Plains Action Society in a few minutes as well. She's also a descendant of the White Earth Band of Ojibwe. Hello, Jessica. Hello. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. Well, and I, I want to start with a conversation about education because you're also a graduate of the University of Iowa a few years ahead of Abigail. You earned your MA in philosophy here and you got your undergraduate degree at the University of Minnesota. Can you give me an idea? I know that, of course, there there's a lot more indigenous representation in the state of Minnesota. Can you tell me a little bit about your educational experience and what it was like to be an indigenous student at both of these institutions? Um, sure, yeah. So specifically, I did my undergrad at the University of Minnesota Morris. Oh, okay. uh, Morris, yep, um, was at one point a uh, boarding school. And so part of it becoming a part of the University of Minnesota system was an agreement that uh, Native students would have uh, tuition waived. So I went there um, uh, on their tuition waiver program. My My mom is enrolled and I am Seven thirty seconds uh, is my official blood quantum, and uh, White Earth has a uh, one fourth requirement, so I'm one thirty seconds short of um, being enrolled. But I, I am confident that within my life, I, I will become enrolled. Um, but yeah, uh, Morris um, did have uh, Native organizations when I went there. I didn't really grow up with Native communities, so that wasn't something that. You know, I was missing when I went there. I was kind of used to being surrounded by um, white people. Sure. Um, but over the years, um, Morris has uh, done some really great stuff. And um, right now their language programs that weren't there when I was there are, are flourishing. Um, it would have been amazing to take, you know, courses in my language uh, when I was there. But I'm so happy that people can do that now. Yeah. Um, and how about the University of Iowa? What was your experience here? Um, I actually, <laughs> I, I wasn't, again, involved a lot with um, the Native um, student organization um, or even, even the broader minority student, or, broader minority student organizations. Um, you know, even going to those meetings, being Native, you're the minority of the minority, um, unless it's an exclusively, explicitly native organization. Um, so yeah, again, my, my time at the University of Iowa was very white, but yeah. um, I did gain a lot of skills. And, you know, as I was approaching the end of my time there and realizing that I, I didn't feel like going into academia, another, you know, white space was what I wanted to do. And, um, it's just been really great to be able to transfer the skills that I gained into uh, using those to address Native issues in a way that um, a lot of people don't have the time and space to do. I, I was asking Abigail earlier how she feels about Native American Heritage Month. How about you? What what does this month mean or, or not mean to you? I mean, we deal with these issues, you know, every day of the year, but um, it is nice that we have this designated period of time where people reach out and talk and want to listen. Um, I encourage people today, it's actually the anniversary of the Sand Creek Massacre, and it is really important that we 
we know our shared history. So I encourage people to, you know, look that up as a, you know, little end of Native month um, uh, thing to learn about. Can you, can you briefly tell us what it is? Um, it was a massacre in which the it's sad the United States government killed a lot of um, unarmed women and children under a white flag. Um, you know, our history is not pretty um, to the extent that we've legislated against teaching it. But, you know, the policy was to exterminate indigenous people, you know, right, including <laughs> including children. And that's, you know, that's something that happened. And ignoring it is not going to change the fact that it happened. But talking about it and learning from it and doing what we can to make sure that we stop that from happening now, which it is, um, is vitally important. We started this hour with a conversation about the movie Killers of the Flower Moon, directed by Martin Scorsese. And uh, we talked about the fact that that was a very high-profile film that that tells the story of what happened to the Osage people, but it was directed by a white filmmaker and written by uh, white writers. And there have been some other really high-profile projects that have been directed, written, acted by indigenous people recently. And just in the next couple of minutes, I would love to get... Your perspective, Jessica, and Abigail, yours as well. Uh, Jessica, is do you feel like Indigenous people are are really making some progress when it comes to popular culture? Yeah, I, I really do think so. I mean, definitely. I'm I'm old. I'm you know I'm forty. Um, but you know, I'm seeing so much stuff now that I just didn't ever get to see when I was growing up. And shows like Reservation Dogs, um, which you know, had a beautiful, complete story arc and Rutherford Falls, which got canceled way too soon and needs to be brought back. Um, it's just, it's amazing to see um, Indigenous people on the TV. And and it's fun because, you know, Indian country is so small, you'd be like, oh, I know them. And, you know, <laughs> that person's worked with Great Plains. And, you know, nice. It's a lot of yeah. Well, and Reservation Dogs is streaming on Hulu. Rutherford Falls, pardon me, is streaming on um, uh, Peacock. And there's the new movie Frybread Face and Me on Netflix. What about you, Abigail? I know you're a big Reservation Dogs fan. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I have seen every episode and every season. It's amazing. When it first came out, of course, we were a little hesitant about what it would be like or, you know, like what would happen. But I think it honestly does a pretty good representation of Native people today. And I just love the story. You you do a lot of work educating other students. Do you tell people you should watch this show? This, yes. you'll help. This will help you understand what it means to be indigenous today. Yes. If anyone asks what movies or shows they're watching, my first one is Reservations Dogs because it's also like relatable and funny to just the youth in general. So yeah, I think it's really it's, nice. It's a brilliant, brilliant show. It is. Well, we are going to take a short break, and Abigail, I'm going to say goodbye to you. Thank you so much for being here today. Yes, thank you for having me again. Abigail Buffalo, she is a senior at the University of Iowa focusing on health studies. She's also president of the Native American Student Association at the University of Iowa and a member of the Meskwaki Nation. And Jessica Ingleking is going to stay with us. She is representation director of the Great Plains Action Society and a descendant of the White Earth Band of Ojibwe. We will be back in just a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. 
Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. November is Native American Heritage Month, which is a time to recognize and learn about the history, culture, and contributions of indigenous people in the United States. And as I mentioned earlier, just as black history shouldn't be limited to February and women's history shouldn't be limited to March, indigenous history is an important part of American history no matter when you're talking about it. But we are taking advantage of this moment. Um, With me, Jessica Engelking, she is the representative Presentation director of the Great Plains Action Society. She's also a descendant of the White Earth Band of Ojibwe. And Sikawis Nobis is here. She is the founder and executive director of the Great Plains Action Society. She is Plains Creek Soto of the George Gordon First Nation in Saskatchewan. Sikawis, welcome back to the show. Hello, good morning. It's wonderful to have you here. And I gave both Jessica and Abigail an opportunity to talk about their feelings about Native American Heritage Month. I'd love to hear from you. What What are your thoughts uh, about this month? Um, you know, of course, it's it's not a bad thing. Uh, it's wonderful that people uh, have an opportunity to uh, really showcase or um, uplift uh, Indigenous culture and history um, and ideologies. Uh, however, it, it it is, I feel like it is somewhat tokenizing because um, a lot of folks may not, may not interact with Indigenous folks uh, throughout the year until it's, you know, Native American Heritage Month um, or, like, truly understand, like, how we live, what we do, who we are, um, you know, outside of that context. So, um, you know, there's ups and downs to it. Well, and the fact that it's November makes it emotionally complicated. Tell me more about that. Um, November. Uh, Wait, you mean because of because Thanksgiving? Of Thanksgiving. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> you know, and, and then, of course, um, Native American Heritage Day, I, I guess, is like the day after Thanksgiving, which I, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if people are doing this on purpose. <laughs> It just feels um, feels like another another way to make indigenous people invisible. It, yes, yeah, um, and so yeah, I, I I don't know why it's in November. I can't tell you that. Um, I you know didn't grow up here. I I've been here for almost twenty years, but um, it's just not something that I guess I've ever uh, looked into. Um, but I mean, Thanksgiving uh, is basically. Um, based upon uh, a, a white colonial mythology um, about, uh, you know, indigenous folks breaking bread with, uh, you know, Puritan invaders. Uh, and that's just not what happened at all. And you can read more about that if you look up um, uh, James um, Wamsuda. Oh, geez. Why am I forgetting his last name all of a sudden? Um, But he's of the Wampanoag uh, Nation. And back in uh, 1970-something, he he actually, uh, you know, uh, clapped back, if you will, at the locals for their um, uh, Thanksgiving celebration and uh, wrote about it. And so since then, for, I guess, the past 40-something years, uh, people have been um, in that part of the the, 
uh, world uh, in that part of the U.S. have been celebrating a, a day of mourning. And, um, you know, across the country, people have, uh, you know, uh, boycotted Thanksgiving, uh, indigenous people all over, um, you know, uh, uh, protested at parades um, and, uh, you know, been been having anti-Thanksgiving events for a long time um, out in uh uh, Alcatraz Island, there is an, uh, there's the sunrise ceremony that happens every year. It's been happening since AIM occupied it. Um, and then here in Iowa, in Iowa City, we've been celebrating uh, Truthgiving for um, eight years or seven years um, publicly. Um, and so that's something that um, I started in my home and it's become a thing. And so we've done it at the Inglert now the past uh, two years, basically um, wanting to um, keep the idea of gathering with family and celebrating the harvest, especially indigenous foods, um, but um, overcoming the harmful uh, whitewashed uh, story, the mythology, and, um, you know, so, and telling the truth about what's really going on in this country and the real history. Um, and um, yeah, just, just so much more, just really celebrating indigenous culture as well. With the Great Plains Action Society, you're coming up on your 10th anniversary of, of founding the Great Plains Action Society. And it's been exciting from my perspective to watch it grow over the years. For people who aren't familiar with your work, can you just briefly tell, tell us about your mission? Um, our mission is to uh, basically tend to <laughs> the trauma that, uh, you know, colonial capitalism has created um, on this earth, you know, uh, to indigenous peoples and the land and uh, to, uh, you know, indigenize spaces um, and, and, you know, decolonize spaces um, as, you know, that's, that's a complicated term, decolonize, but, you know, do what we can uh, to uh, make the world a more compassionate and just space. It, it also, it feels like you've really done a lot of community building as well. I mean, Jessica, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. There are so many indigenous people who are involved in the Great Plains Action Society who come from, you know, a huge variety of backgrounds, but who have connected to each other. Sakawas, is that part of your goal to, to really find that connection? Yeah. So you said we're coming up on our 10th anniversary, you know, and it's, we have 2014 on there because, um, you know, I was trying to do this after I graduated here with my master's degree from the University of Iowa. I also was the president of um, the Native American Student Association when I was there. And, um, you know, I, I just felt lonely. <laughs> and, you know, um, I actually remember bumping into Jessica back in the day and saying, Hey, come, come do some stuff with us. And, uh, you know, now we're like, we've been friends forever. And, you know, we, we, you know, um, I started this organization together, but, um, you know, I, I, I just felt like there needed to be something for indigenous people outside of the university because, you know, I, I just, I know we're small in number here, like, you know, 16,000, um, and I'm sure there's more, but <clears throat> in, in across Iowa, but I, I do still believe that there needed to be a space for us because I, I just really missed home. I, I, I grew up with so many Native people and then just to be surrounded by such whiteness was just really like different, you know, and, yeah. and hard. Um, and so, you know, 2014 is when I was trying to get people together, you know, and even before that, years before that, 
you know, I was like, hey, let's get together. Let's do stuff. People would come over. I'd start trying to get people together, but then they, you know, graduate and leave. And, um, you know, 2016 is when, when, when really things came, to, came, came together. Um, well, and that's because of Standing Rock. Right, uh, which was a, a really galvanizing moment for so many people. Um, Jessica, I'd love your thoughts because, you know, as Sakawas was saying, she grew up <laughs> surrounded by Native people and then came to Iowa where she was surrounded by white people. Um, you didn't grow up really in a Native community. So as an adult, having this connection largely through technology, but also through these personal relationships, face-to-face relationships, what does it mean to you to have been part of building this community? Uh, I just, I think it's really funny because I actually have a meeting later today with, um, part of a research uh, project that I'm a part of. Um, and my job tonight is to talk about how we build community. <laughs> and so I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And and it's hard because, um, like you said, I didn't really come from Native community. There were very few Native people where I grew up. And actually, where I grew up was Red Lake land, and I'm whiter. So <laughs> there was even, like, another degree of um, uh, separation there. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, I think really nurturing the relationships that you find, like Sakalis mentioned, we've been friends for, I want to say at least 15 years and, and having that friendship, you know, from it grows other relationships. And I've met so many (laughs) amazing natives through Sakalis and, you know, I think a part of community building that is very vital that um, we might not appreciate is is nurturing the community that we have as much as we can and that trusting that that grows. We have about 10 minutes left and I want to talk about some of the the issues that you feel are most pressing for Indigenous people today. And I want to acknowledge that these are difficult subjects to talk about, but also that each one of these subjects deserves at least a full hour of conversation. And and we've talked about some of these on this show in the past, and we will again in the future. But um, Sakawas, what do you feel are your priorities as, as far as focusing on some of the challenges that indigenous people face today? Um, well, as the executive director of the organization, my priorities um, are, are, you know, widespread, if you will. Um, but, uh, you know, I just, I want to like acknowledge the amazing work that uh, Trisha Rivers is doing um, in Sioux City uh, to um, basically overcome colonial violence uh, to uplift the indigenous community, provide resources, healing, um, and and so much more. Um, and that's that's where we, you know, there's a lot of natives living in Iowa. Um, and you know, there's there's also, you know, hardship that people have to overcome uh, because of you know uh, colonial capitalism. And so, you know, I, I think that that's important. You know, um, that's very important. Um, my, my heart. Oh, sorry. Let let me just ask you to, to help me understand that even more strongly, because I mean, we're talking about centuries of destruction of culture, of tearing families apart and, and all of these 
things that have happened in the past, I mean, they they still affect indigenous people today. And you've compared it to, I mean, you are people living in a post-apocalyptic culture in some ways. Yeah, definitely. That's something that, um, you know, I I definitely have talked about, you know, um, and... You know, then it's, it's it's really interesting to hear um, other natives, um, you know, uh, also, um, you know, see it that way as well. Um, because uh, my friend, my good friend Shelley Buffalo, um, has said the same thing, and she she learned it from um, her cousin Jonathan Buffalo. You know, this uh, like idea that we're living in a post-apocalyptic world already, and so um, you know, it's it's just like we we been through genocide um it you know boarding schools were not schools they in my opinion were you know more like an internment camp for children um it was places that that where not just people were brought to lose their culture but to, to lose their lives children you know um from the ages you know whatever to whatever and um it, it was a place where uh you know children were raped and tortured um and murdered um these places and and like uh you know now we're just uncovering the bodies right. uh, in Canada and some people are now here too as well but you know uh and then and just all the things that have happened you know all the things um and all of you know that are all the things that are still happening you know we have the highest rate of missing and murdered uh people in the country and and where do you hear about anybody doing anything about it um, it's it's not it's not very common that you hear people talking about it, um, and so we have we have a lot of challenges. Yeah, but uh, you know, I would also I also don't like to just talk about the bad things. Like I want to say that you know we are tenacious, awesome, amazing people, and there's a lot of wonderful things going on. And you know, like I said, Trisha Rivers is an example of like the work that's being done um, in Sioux City. Well, and all all of you are obviously vital, intelligent, successful, dynamic individuals. So it, it is, I, I hope that that you know that that is being heard. Absolutely. Um, you know, we're, we're here. I mean, um, Jessica and I are here and we're representing, you know, just, just ourselves and Great Plains Action Society. But, you know, I'm hoping people understand that, like, we're, you know, um, just an example of, like, the amazing people um, across Turtle Island that are, like, doing such good work all over. If there are people listening right now who think, you know what, I, I need to educate myself. I need to look farther. I, this is something I don't know a lot about and I want to know more. Um, Jessica, I'll let you go first, but then Sakawas, I'd love to hear from you, too. Jessica, where, sh- where do you suggest people go to, to learn more, to educate themselves? Um, I actually think it's really important that people pay attention to what's happening to our education system right now. Um, as Abigail was talking earlier, you know, like my heart swelled hearing about all the amazing things she was doing, but then I was thinking about, you know, the the very recent efforts to to cut out, you know, all the DEI that isn't federally mandated. And it got me scared thinking about, you know, all these things Abigail was saying that she loved about the university, just not being there anymore. Um, And also about our history not being taught to the children. So, I mean, people, you know, just read everything you can. Read in Indigenous 
indigenous people's history of the United States, you know, read, but like, be aware of what's going on within our education system and do what you can to make sure that children are given access to all the books and realize like how these, how this education legislature harms all children. When we have this legislature that says these books are bad and we're going to take them, you know, out of the libraries, you can't read them, you know, that's either, you know, reaffirming bigotry or introducing bigotry where it wasn't or making people feel really bad about themselves because, you know, they're being told that, you know, their lives, our stories are something that, you know, should be hidden. Right. So, I mean, I just hope people are really aware of what's going on. And with, with about education in Iowa, Iowa used to be like at the top of the nation for education. Now it's we ha- we have only about thirty seconds left. Uh, Jessica, thank you so Sorry. much. Sakawa, no, you're great. <laughs> Sakawa, what do you, what do you want to add to that in thirty seconds? I know it's not um, long. Rematriate the land. Iowa's most biologically um, colonized state in the country. Um, the water here is not doing well. That means that the health of Iowans won't, is not are, is not doing well. Uh, and we need um, indigenous uh, practices to uh, steward the land, to take care of the land, um, and um, keep people safe from destructive, you know, agricultural practices. And so um, land back, rematriate, um, those are important topics. Maybe we could do another show. Yes, I would love to. Sakawas <laughs> Nobis, thank you. Thank you. And Jessica Ingleking, thank you. Miigwech. Sakawas Nobis and Jessica Ingleking of the Great Plains Action Society. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. This episode was produced by Maddie Willis and Caitlin Troutman with technical support from Kate Perez. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa.